So as Sarah alluded to, we're going to be starting a series on the Lord's Prayer. It's going to take us the next three weeks. We're going to spend some time looking at the Lord's Prayer because it's been too long. It's been seven or eight years, I think, since we've looked together at the Lord's Prayer. The last time we did, Jim and I were doing the series together, so that's how long it's been. Yesterday was actually the sixth anniversary of his retirement and my becoming senior pastor, and it was a couple years before that. So it's been too long, basically, for us to have spent some time looking at this foundational thing of what it means to be a Christian, Because learning to pray this prayer is what forms us into a follower of Jesus. Tertullian, who was an ancient Christian father, called the Lord's Prayer an epitome of the gospel. And Cyprian, another one, called it a compendium of heavenly doctrine. The early church gave this prayer to its baptismal candidates to be the first prayer they prayed after their baptism and to form them in the contours of the faith. There are precious few things that Christians hold as commonly as we hold the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to spend some time learning about it and more importantly, praying it. So let's turn then to scripture and hear from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he gives his disciples these words. But first, let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come, Lord Jesus, and shine on us. In your name we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that beats to the heart of God. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who've wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So if you know much at all about Christians, you probably know that prayer is important for them. If you are a Christian, you probably know that you ought to pray The question is how, and it's a perennial question. How is it that we ought to pray? How is it that we join into Jesus' praying life? How do we pray so that our prayers aren't just us trying to twist God's arm into giving us what we want? How do we pray so that our prayers aren't just the laundry list of whatever our felt needs are in that exact moment and nothing more? How is it that we pray in such a way that it's not just a check-off-the-box, going-through-the-motions kind of thing? I think we have a sense that prayer needs to be more than all those things, but how should we pray? Well, as Sarah alluded to, Jesus' disciples asked him that very question. It's in Luke chapter 11, if you want to go and find it. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And, remarkably, Jesus answers, which is remarkable because 
most of the time, the disciples ask the wrong questions, right? They're always asking the wrong question. Lord, which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Lord, tell us, when is your kingdom going to come on earth and kick these Romans out of here finally? They're always asking the wrong question and through the page you can hear Jesus roll his eyes at them and try to go off in a different direction. But this time he answers because it's one of the very few times they've asked the right question. Lord, teach us to pray. And in response, Jesus gives us, his disciples, not a lecture about prayer, but a prayer to pray. A prayer that by praying apprentices us into prayer. And in Luke, Jesus says, pray these words. In Matthew, we heard him say, pray like this. And Christians have embraced both ways of praying the Lord's Prayer and finding them equally important. Both praying them verbatim, pray these words, as we do in each worship service, and pray like this. Learn the contours of these words and use them as guides to shape and form new prayers in this one's image. As we spend the next three weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer, I'd like to invite you to do this. We don't learn to pray by talking about prayer. We learn to pray by praying. And so for these next three weeks and hopefully beyond that, I want to invite you, if you don't already, to commit to praying these words daily. To pray the Lord's Prayer. Commit that to practice. Make it a habit as natural as brushing your teeth, washing your hands, or breathing Maybe you'll simply recite it, and maybe you'll do that with other people out loud, or maybe you'll follow its contours and allow it to lead you into deeper prayer. However you pray, the important thing is that you pray it, because that practice of praying this prayer daily for the next three weeks will do far more than listening to three sermons about prayer. But now on to the prayer itself. There's lots of different ways you can split up this prayer. We put it in three chunks because we have three weeks. So this week, we're going to look at the first line, the address. It tells us to whom we're praying. And in that already, there are significant riches. Our Father who art in heaven. Next week, we'll look at the first three petitions, all about God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then in the final week, we'll look at the last three petitions that turn to us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debtors, debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this week we hear simply, Our Father who is in heaven. In the more traditional language, Our Father who art in heaven. And there's three things we're going to notice as we look at this part of the prayer. The first comes already in the first word, our. Not the, not my, not your, not his, not hers. Our. First person, plural. Plural. Because we always pray in the plural. There is something remarkably personal about our faith. There is something important about an individual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You will come to Jesus through the witness and the teaching and the life of others, but a time will come when you cannot any longer stand on their faith and when you must come to answer for yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Discipleship, uh, actually 
talks about this really well. He says that Jesus' call to become his disciple, when he says, come and follow me, that call strips us away from every other group and relationship that has given us meaning and belonging from family, nation, ethnicity, political party, profession, everything else. And it brings us to Jesus alone as a single individual to answer that invitation, come and follow me or not. But Bonhoeffer writes, everyone enters discipleship alone but no one remains alone in discipleship because we are given immediately upon answering that question the gift of the church community. We're welcomed then into a new family, into a new body. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. These ways that we divide and give ourselves meaning are no longer for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We've been brought into a new body, our. We pray in the plural, which means we never pray alone. We always pray as part of the communio sanctorum, the communion of saints, Even when we're at home praying in secret to our Father who hears in secret, we pray our, within this family. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the faith. We pray with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we're prayed for by our brothers and sisters in the faith. And I don't just mean those who are sitting around you right now. I mean all those who've gone before us and all those who will follow after us. In the spirit, we're united all in Christ and therefore together into this one body. We pray in the plural. And maybe the most important thing about this, praying in the plural is remembering the one who gave us this prayer and invited us to say with him, our, Jesus. Jesus includes himself in that, or more accurately, includes us in his hour. Our praying unites us then to Jesus, the only mediator between God and humanity. The reason we pray in the name of Jesus is the recognition that Jesus is praying with us always, is joining himself to us in the act of praying. One of my favorite hymns is Before the Throne of God Above. I have a strong and perfect plea. My great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That Christ is before the throne, pleading for us, praying with us, joining our prayers, mediating between God and humanity always. As Christians, we never pray alone. We always pray in the plural. Could keep going on that for a while, but you get the point, right? Our, we pray in the plural. And that's just the first word. The second is maybe more important. Our Father. We always pray in the plural, but we also always pray in the family. So there's been pushback over the last number of years to this language of our father and people have issue with it. So let's be clear about some things. This has nothing to do with gender, to pray our father. Not about gender. No serious Christian or theologian would make the mistake of thinking God is a man, right? God's not human. God's not even a physical creation or creature. So God does not have gender. God is not male. This isn't about that. It's also not about elevating fathers and promoting the patriarchy. We're not projecting our fathers into the heavens to worship them. 
In fact, we may actually be doing something quite the opposite, being offered a standard, one against whom all earthly fathers will be measured, judged, and found to have fallen short, and maybe finally given a good father to heal the wounds caused by some of our own. So instead of importing the cultural baggage about gender and fathers, what does it mean to pray then our father? Father is a relational term, right? To have a father means that there are children. It's a word that only makes sense in relationships. So what relationship are we talking about? Well, Matthew's quite clear. There's only two times in the whole gospel where God speaks, where a voice from heaven thunders for all those present to hear. The first is in Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism. The second is Matthew 17 at Jesus' transfiguration. And both times that voice from heaven says something remarkably similar. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my son. Jesus is the son of God. And calling God father is describing God in that unique and intimate relationship that Jesus has with God the father. We can only think of father and also think of son. We can only think of son and also think of the father. Father is a glimpse into the inner life of the Trinity, into the way in which God relates to God's self. For Jesus to invite us to pray with him, our father, is to give us the most precious and unique gift Jesus can give, his intimate relationship with God. To pray our father isn't to say that we collectively own God, to wield as we want, but that God has chosen in Jesus to become ours, to adopt us as his very own. Paul said it this way in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. That what Jesus has done is made it possible for us to be adopted as God's children and become heirs and cry out from our hearts, Father. To pray our Father is to recognize the bounty of God's grace that we've been adopted as children into which we've been taken now out of our natural families and slavery to sin and have been brought into this family of God being made children and heirs. To pray our Father is about so much more than seeing God as the creator of all things. We're not looking at the world around us and saying, well, all this is here, so something must have created it, so we'll call that thing God, and since that thing made us, it must be like a father and we must be like children. No, we're not talking about creation but salvation, about the God who is our savior and our rescuer, who's adopted us as God's own children. It would not do for us to pray our God who is in heaven, our creator who is in heaven, because what we're praying is something far more important, powerful, and stunning. We've been united into Jesus' own relationship with the Father. 
We've been brought into this dimension of the life of God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is itself the gospel. That there's not just a Father out there. There's not just Jesus' Father out there. But that we are united into Christ by his death and resurrection, joined into the communion of the triune God, and therefore invited to pray our Father because we're adopted as children. Isn't that remarkable? We pray having been grafted into that relationship. Here we are at home. Here we belong. Here we're welcomed. And in that relationship we pray. Not as distant servants hoping to grasp the master's ear. Not as tiny creatures trying not to be stomped or tormented or forgotten by an immense creator. We do not come to pray to a God who's distant and disinterested, sleeping or absent. We pray within the incredibly intimate relationship of the Father and the Son. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. We're a little further apart. We're outside. It's different. There's neighbors around. But amen. Amen. That's our and Father. And that leaves us with who art in heaven. When we pray, we pray in the plural. We pray in a family. But just in case we're tempted because of these things to domesticate this God into something we can own and hold and carry around with us, we're reminded of where this God is in heaven. In our culture, we're tempted to imminence and intimacy, to make faith about comfort and ease and a God who is there with us to pat us on the back and cheer us on, who gives us everything that we want and acts like the world's greatest lawnmower parent, just taking out every obstacle in our way. But when we do this, we lose sight of God's transcendence. We betray God's otherness and immensity. We forget that the God to whom we pray is cosmic, is in the heavens. This prayer invites us to learn that God is in a place. God is located and that place is in the heavens. So if God is in the heavens, that means God is not in other places. So that means God doesn't reside in our country. Something like Christian nationalism is simply not possible when you learn to pray the Lord's Prayer Because our Father is not over the United States, but in the heavens, over every nation. We are not a unique and chosen, special nation beloved by God alone. God loves us. God has a plan for us. But no much more so than any other nation in the world. Our God is in the heavens. It also means that our God doesn't live, let's say, in our sanctuary. God's not ours to put in a little box. It's a beautiful space. It is cherished and historic. And it should be respected and preserved. But God does not live there. It is not God's home. Our Father is in the heavens. Which also means that our God is not our possession to carry around as our genie in our bottle, to wield, to answer all of our wishes and desires. Our Father's in the heavens which also means our Father's not in every rock and tree and hill and vale. We're not panentheists. God is not in everything all around us. No, God is in the heavens. And we catch 
a glimpse of that heavenly throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. We looked at it last fall where John struggles to find words for this vision of the throne in heaven and the one seated on the throne and the sea of glass that stretches out before it and the four living creatures that surround it worshiping God and the 24 elders who are continuously falling on their faces and casting their crowns before the throne to worship God and the myriad upon myriad of angels who surround them singing their praises and the voices from all of creation that are lifted up to join in that praise as well. That's where God is seated on the throne in heaven above and thank God for it because if Jesus is just a moral example for us why pray and if prayer is just auto-suggestion or self-therapy or positive thinking why bother because if you haven't yet realized what's wrong in this world is far more than can ever be solved by our social activism by our party's platforms, by our volunteerism, by even the proper usage of our wealth as immense as it is. What's wrong in this world is cosmic. What's broken goes down to its core and beyond. So we don't need a God who's hiding then under every blossom and vista. We don't need a God who's so small as to be wielded by one of us or a political party or even a whole nation. We don't need a God who's merely our best friend. We need a God who is cosmic. We need a God who sits on the throne in heaven, who has God's hands on the controls, who's powerful enough to do something about the actual problem. And what we've been given in this prayer is exactly that God, our Father who is in heaven. I'm reminded of one of the question and answers in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's number 26. Catechism, by the way, was written about 500 years ago by two guys in their 20s in the midst of a time of great political and social and religious upheaval to try to offer a resource to other people to help teach them and understand what we believe and who we are as Christians. And in its 26th question and answer, this is the question. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Part of the Apostles' Creed we'll say later. And here's the answer. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. It keeps going. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. And here's maybe even the better part. God is able to do this because he is almighty God and desires to do this because he is faithful father. God is able because he is almighty God and desires to do it because he's a faithful father our Father who art in heaven. This is who we pray to. This is who we pray to in the hospital when for every step forward, there are two steps back. This is who we pray to in the wake of the sudden loss of one whom we love and sorrow like sea billows roll. This is who we pray to when our darkest fears are unfolding before our eyes. 
This is who we pray to when we are overcome by the images of such violence and injustice in our world that we cannot even find words. When we come to the end of ourselves, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. We always pray in the plural. We always pray in the family. And we pray to the one seated on the throne in heaven. Amen? So like any family,